podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to The Fear of God, Episode 7. We're having a conversation on this show about Christianity and the horror genre and the intersection there. And having this conversation are two people, myself, I am Reed Lackey. And Nathan Rouse here. And what we want to do uh, for the next few weeks is something a little special. As you're listening to this, this is October, which of course is a very special month for horror fans. Halloween is quickly on the horizon. And what we wanted to do, potentially as a recurring thing, maybe every October or maybe just periodically, or I don't know, maybe this will be the only time we do something like this. We wanted to take the next few weeks and kind of focus in on one particular filmmaker as an individual, kind of do a a deeper dive into the work of one very specific filmmaker who I am very, very fond of, and I'm sure many fans of the horror genre are also very familiar with him and very fond of him. Uh, Or maybe, uh, like my good friend Nathan, you have only seen prior to this, uh, maybe one or two of his films. So before we get into all that, Nathan, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. I got to admit, my my cultural palette has been stuffed to overflowing with some pretty scary stuff lately, but, uh, (laughs) you're welcome. Yeah. But otherwise I'm doing well, you know, typically listeners probably won't know or care, but typically we do these podcasts recording in the evening and right now it's, it's, uh, fresh and early, uh, especially for you. And, uh, so I'm doing well, I'm feeling on top of the day. Um, but I gotta ask, I gotta ask Reed, how the fog are you? You like that? (laughs) (laughs) That's, uh, that's terribly impressive and don't do it again. Um, (laughs) um, yeah, no, doing pretty good. As you said, it's, uh, it's pretty early in the morning for me, but, uh, but I'm very, very excited to, to dive into what we're talking about today. Um, and given that we, uh, we actually have, uh, quite a bit of ground to go to cover. So what, what we're going to do, we're going to take a few minutes here. And, uh, for those of you who are listening and are like, who, who in the world are they talking about? We are going to be spending the next few weeks talking about the work of, I consider him legendary filmmaker, John Carpenter. I'm going to jump in here, Reed. I think it's important to note that in this ongoing conversation of Christianity and horror that we might have picked the most Christian of them. I mean, the guy's name, his initials are JC, you know, and (laughs) his last name is Carpenter. I mean, you don't get a more righteous vocation 
than that. So I don't know. I think you chose wisely. And, I, yeah, yeah. you know, the gospel just reeks <laughs> off of his material. And I think we're going <laughs> to, especially especially our third installment, but I'm sure you'll you'll get to where we're going with all this. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure if he, uh, and he's, he's never going to listen to this, but I'm sure that if he did and, uh, heard those references, he would, he would definitely, uh, uh, I don't know about be offended. He'd, he'd probably lose his, uh, his lunch, whatever it was. But it's interesting that you say that though, because I'm a big believer that, that religious themes and sometimes religious thoughts can often be subtextual for uh, even, Filmmakers and artists who would consider themselves to be completely a-religious, but uh, but and he's definitely one who has been open about the fact that religion, in some variation, uh, is present in a lot of his films. Not because he himself is a religious person. I think he's I think he's actually a very uh, outspoken non-religious person. But he said in, in several interviews before that either a religious character or a religious theme is prominent in a lot of his work. And uh, I think, honestly, when I'm coming right down to it, the biggest reason I wanted to profile him first um, has to do with the fact, uh, two things. First of all, he's one of my very favorite directors ever, not just in the horror genre. He's just one of my favorites. Um, and then also he made a film that we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. Um, and I wanted to talk, I wanted to spend our first Halloween here on the fear of God talking about Halloween. So, um, that was, uh, largely the reason why we're doing this sort of deep dive, but what we're going to do, well, let me, ask, let me ask you, let me ask you, Reed. Um, uh, I'm going to jump in again as I'm, as I'm want to do. Sure. Uh, I know you've got some specific sort of profile material to hash through, but I'm curious from your experience, um, I had seen Halloween before uh, about 15 years ago. Um, but that was the only of the movies we're going to be talking about that I had seen previous, uh, hearkening back to our pilot episode when you talked about seeing, you know, Freddy Krueger at two and a half, that's a bit of an overstatement. Um, but you know, when, <laughs> what, what was your initial, uh, experience with John Carpenter? Um, I believe that the first John Carpenter film I saw was in fact Halloween. I'm embarrassed to say that I'm not actually quite sure how young I was when I saw it, but I know it was early. You're not sure or you're embarrassed to admit? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was definitely, uh, you know what? Probably both. We'll just say both. Um, uh, it was young. It was on the younger side. I'm sure I saw it uh, as an adolescent, nine or 10, but I'm, I'm actually not quite sure. Unlike some of the other films that I have a very specific memory of where I saw it and, and where I was and how old I was, that's not the case with, uh, Halloween specifically. I do know though that Halloween was the, was the first John Carpenter film I saw. Gotcha. Um, and then I went on to see probably, uh, they live next. Um, I think I was a little late coming to the thing, although that is, that is definitely a favorite. That's probably good and healthy for you to be, late to, <laughs> to, to be at least a teenager is probably right. wise. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think, Maybe like a lot of people, it wasn't until I was approaching my late teens, early 20s that I really began to realize, you know what, this guy's a favorite of mine. He He's responsible for a lot of films that I really enjoy, that I really love, and then sort of started doing a more focused look at his filmography and a more focused look at the kinds of things that I responded to in his films. So uh, Halloween was de definitely kicked the door down, as it did for a lot of people. It, that was the one that uh, got me started in his work. It's my 10th favorite film of all time, not just in the horror genre. That's very specific. 
you you've known me for a long time, but I don't know that I've I, I don't know that I have shared with you, and and we we don't need to divert to this because it will take a lot of time. But uh, but I I am very very fond of list making. I know you I know you are. I just <laughs> I just want to make sure the listeners are aware that it's okay if they don't they aren't one hundred percent sure. <laughs> what their 10th favorite of all time is genre. Exactly. But I applaud your specificity. (laughs) Well, and it changes every year, you know, a couple couple of years ago, um, (laughs) Halloween ranked at number 11, you know, it cracks the top 10. uh, So it's climbed up. It's climbed. It has. Yeah, it has. And uh, who knows? knows, And and who knows what 2017 will hold, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Maybe we'll find it uh, (laughs) up there at number six or four. Who knows? Maybe it'll drop back down to, 42. That's doubtful. But, um, so, uh, so how, how these episodes are kind of going to go, and this is our first time doing this, uh, but, uh, how these episodes are going to go is I want to spend the next few minutes just kind of looking at, uh, sort of a broad stroke of the first decade of his work, um, touching on the films that he made there and a couple of trivial highlights here and there. Feel free to jump in, um, if you have any trivial highlights I don't touch on. Do they have to be related to John Carpenter? Or just trivial? Uh, I'd prefer it. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of like, hey, did you know that when you... Right, right, right. But but what we'll do is uh, after those first 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to do a more intensive look at uh, one of his films specifically. Um, As you alluded to earlier, we're going to be looking at his film The Fog in a more in-depth basis. But uh, first thing I want to do is just kind of look at the first sort of decade of his work to begin with. So listeners, we're going to dive right in and going to introduce you uh, in broad strokes to the work of John Carpenter. Nathan, you ready? I'm I'm buckled up. <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh I'm 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 just going to kind of rattle off sort of an audio biography here. Carpenter was born in Carthage, New York, uh January 16th, 1948. He was the son of a music professor and uh fans of his films will know that he's also noted for composing a lot of the music in his films. Um, he's said that his biggest influence in filmmaking is a combination of like the classic Westerns, like John Wayne and John Ford Westerns and low budget science fiction and horror films. And as we'll see in a couple of his films, he actually combines the qualities of both of those genres a few times into sort of an odd amalgam that gives him a unique style. He uh, went to film school at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts and it's interesting because he was a part of a short film called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. Now, he didn't direct that short film, uh, but he did co-write it, edit it, and compose the music for it. And that went on to win the Academy Award in 1970 for Best Live Action Short Film. So watch, uh, watch the Oscars, those short films. You never know what names are, uh, are going to crop up there every year. But while he was in film school, he had directed his first feature, um, which uh, wasn't actually begun as with the intention of releasing it theatrically. But he directed a film called Dark Star, which he had co-written with his his buddy at the time, Dan O'Bannon. Uh, now, Dan O'Bannon may be noteworthy to, to science fiction and horror fans because um, for Dan O'Bannon's work on Dark Star, he was actually eyed by one George Lucas and was commissioned to come help with Star Wars on the special effects specifically. Um, but more so for the horror genre, Dan O'Bannon is noteworthy because uh, actually using some inspiration from Dark Star, uh, Dan O'Bannon went on to write Alien, which is kind of his claim to fame. But Carpenter directed Dark Star for a measly $60,000. 
And, you know, obviously I don't have $60,000 sitting in my, <laughs> sitting in my bank account, but. But if you did, you could make Dark Star. I could make Dark Star too, in you know, maybe. 73 or whenever that was. <laughs> exactly. Uh, something to aspire to. It, it, it's interesting because it, if you watch that film, it is something that's fascinating to see because he does so much with a limited budget. And we're going to talk in a little bit about how that's kind of become a trademark for him is how much he can do with very little money. It's only like an hour long. It's like 68 minutes. So he, he directed this and it started running little student film circuits, but there was a producer named Jack Harris who saw it and liked it. Not only did he buy the distribution rights, but he also financed to have an extra like 15 minutes put into it so that it could be released theatrically. And so they did that. That's like every student filmmaker's dream. You just, Hey, this guy wants to buy my student film and, and release it. But the problem was, uh, when they released it, they billed it as like this serious science fiction piece, and it's really more of sort of a dark comedy. So, as we'll discover with many of John Carpenter's films, it was actually initially a failure um, in the in the box office. People didn't didn't quite get it. And John Carpenter has famously said that he is not fond of the of the theatrical cut of it. As he put it, he said they took a really good looking student film and turned it into a pretty crappy looking feature film just because they tried to add in this extra footage for padding and everything. So when he got the opportunity later to uh, re-edit it, he actually, the director's cut of that takes out all of that extra footage and cuts it all down. And if you were to go get the DVD today, the version, I think actually both versions are available on DVD and are distinguished from each other. But the the version that I saw was his original student film. It, I, I think it's actually pretty clever for what it is. Um, it's painfully dated, of course, and it's a student film. Uh, but it's actually surprisingly funny, and it has got a pretty great ending that uh, that kind of depends on the work of a Ray Bradbury short story. So, um, so Dark Star is for any Carpenter fan is is uh, a curious and and possibly worth your time examination. It's not essential, but um, but it, it's worth checking out if you're really curious about doing a deeper dive into his work. But out of Dark Star, he was then asked to make, uh, in the 70s, there's lots of exploitation films being made, and Carpenter was commissioned to basically, hey, we want you to make uh, an action exploitation film. You've got $100,000. Can you do it? So so what Carpenter did was he took um, a script that he had, uh, which combined his love for westerns and horror, specifically the the classic Western Rio Bravo and the classic horror Night of the Living Dead. He had a script that um, sort of combined the elements of those films into a different modern setting. And he took that budget, took that script and made Assault on Precinct 13. So that is considered by Carpenter to be sort of his first official film. It's considered that way by most of his fans, too. And it's uh, it, it's a really good movie. It uh, was very poorly received at the time, uh, that's, you're going to hear me say that a lot for his films, but it was very poorly received at the time. And, uh, the biggest reason for that had to do, ironically, with its violence. Um, I say ironically because today seems like that's something that American audiences tend to be a bit desensitized to sure. and, uh, tend to not care so much about, uh, how intense the violence in some films or TV shows get. Um, but Assault on Precinct 13 is a, is a pretty violent movie. It would actually probably be considered tame by today's standards. But what's interesting is that, uh, one particular director, uh, one particular voice in the critical world, George Romero, who had directed 
Night of the Living Dead, he loved assaulting on Precinct 13 uh, and famously praised it publicly. But it also overseas, specifically in London, but in most of the European territories, it received a lot of praise. Um, so even though American audiences hated it, Carpenter was kind of earning himself a, a global reputation. Well, and clarify, clar- I'm going to jump in and clarify for listeners. I mean, I'm sure we've got a broad sure. spectrum of people who uh, tune in from your diehards who would be familiar with some of this, but also those who... <clears throat> just love to hear our melodious voices. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that name <laughs> probably rings a bell for folks. I mean, there was a remake. You may have been getting to this, but just so before we move on from that specifically, I mean, there was a remake of this, what, seven-ish years ago, somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah, seven or eight years I think ago. with Ethan Hawke, right? Yeah, Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, we, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the remakes when we get, a, a later into, into his career, but the re- I'm not fond of really any of the remakes. Even, even the Precinct 13 one? Yeah, the Precinct 13 one is good, and uh, I'll just kind of leave it there. It is, it, I wouldn't say it was even really good. It's definitely not great, but it is a good movie. Um, compared to the focus of the original, it does come up a little short, because I think the original actually has a great script. I think it's got really tight direction. Ironically, the original, given today's uh, current social climate of, of police officers and racial tensions there, which we don't have to get into, um, it actually provides some sort of accidental social commentary on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I think the original is, is a great action film. I think it's considered one of the best action films of the seventies and it's considered by many to be one of the best of John Carpenter's career. So the remake would have a lot, it kind of have an uphill battle trying to get into that in any capacity. But uh, I'm actually very fond of Assault on Precinct 13. The first time I saw it, I didn't quite get it. Um, but when I rewatched it for this profile, I responded very strongly to it in a positive way. Now, one thing I will say uh, for anybody interested in watching this film, and this is largely the reason American audiences rejected it, it is one of the few films to feature the on-screen murder of a child, specifically a little girl. And that was something that audiences responded very negatively to, at least in, uh, in America. It's, it's not graphically portrayed, uh, particularly by today's standards, but it's still upsetting to watch. Sure. Um, so, so that's something that, that is, uh, it's a plot element. It's not gratuitous. It, it actually thrusts the main, uh, section of the plot into its, into its proper place. But, you know, it's a little upsetting. And Carpenter himself has said, uh, in recent interviews that, if he had it to do over again, he he either would have filmed that scene differently or or not shown the, that death at all. But at the time, he was a young, very sort of uh, I wouldn't call him reckless, but you know, a braver filmmaker and w- more willing to go into some dark places. But uh, but yeah, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. If you're if if you're interested at all in John Carpenter, Assaulting Precinct Thirteen is an essential work to uh, to check out. But moving on from there, uh, he actually, well, I'll just touch on this recently, he, he wrote a script for a film that would eventually become The Eyes of Laura Mars, starring Tommy Lee Jones and Faye Dunaway. Now, I didn't watch this one because other than writing the script, Carpenter didn't have anything to do with it, but it's worth noting if you're looking at the broad strokes of his career. Well, I think that's like the, I think, I think The Eyes of Laura Mars, I mean, that's like the, the prequel to uh, the TV series Veronica Mars, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I would have to do my research on that one, <laughs> but uh, I'll. We'll go. You know what? I didn't do my research, so we'll go ahead and say you're right. We'll uh, we'll just do that, and uh, we'll pick, we'll pick up next week with the fact check on that. Um, 
But, uh, but then right after that, um, his specific follow-up to Assault on Precinct 13 is uh, the legendary landmark of his career. In 1978, he directed Halloween. And uh, we're going to be talking in a few weeks more in depth about Halloween, so I'll save most of my thoughts on it for that episode. But it uh, definitely kicked the door down for his career. It was, for a long time, the most successful independent film ever made. And, uh, it was, you know, it legitimized the slasher genre as a profitable market and solidified John Carpenter as a director to watch. Um, so again, we'll be talking more in depth about Halloween in a few weeks, but he followed up, uh, Halloween, ironically, I think, with two films that he made for television. Uh, the first of which was actually called Someone's Watching Me that he wrote and directed. It is uh, a pretty decent little suspense film. This is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but if you are a fan of kind of the TV-level suspense thrillers, they aren't too graphic, not too intense, but, you know, provide some some decent suspense here and there, then Someone's Watching Me is worth checking out. And it's also notable just because he wrote and directed it. It's got a, it's got a pretty solid ending, but otherwise it's, it's mostly just for the curious. Although it is worth noting that he met uh, actress Adrienne Barbeau on on the set of Someone's Watching Me, he would later marry her and cast her in a number of his films, including the main film we're talking about today. So after Someone's Watching Me, he made what I think is the oddest entry in his film career. It's the last one we're going to talk about before we get into our main film. He made a biopic of Elvis Presley, um, simply called Elvis. And uh, I don't know if this trivia is true, but it holds up in a couple of places where I did research. Evidently, he got the job to direct this film because the producers found out that he wrote the the score for Halloween, and so they thought he could handle a biopic of Elvis. That's funny, simply because he was into music. Uh, I know. And he, uh, so he 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 directed this film. He didn't write the script, but he directed this film, and it stars Kurt Russell, who would uh, become. Uh, intrinsically linked with John Carpenter. He was kind of his muse. Uh, Carpenter and Russell would make uh, a number of films together, and this they met on the set of this of this biopic for Elvis. So is he? does Kurt Russell play Elvis? Kurt Russell plays Elvis in an Emmy-nominated performance that I actually think is very, very good. Interesting. In fact, it's interesting because like the film itself is very well directed, and it looks great. They did a remastered DVD of it, and, and so the film looks great, but unfortunately, the script... Uh, which again, Carpenter didn't write, is just very bland. Uh, everything feels a little inevitable, even if you don't know much about the life of, of Elvis Presley. Um, it's just sort of a paint by numbers sort of script. But, uh, but it, it does have, as I said, good direction and, uh, and some good performances, not only from Kurt Russell as Elvis, but also from Shirley Jones as Elvis's mother. But the other big thing is it is, uh, it's just a little too long. It's three hours long. Wow. Well, come on. Come on. It's, I mean, it's the king. It's the king of rock and roll. You know, you need to spend some time. If if he needs three hours, you give him three hours. But yeah, I mean, like, uh, again, if you're, if you're a fan of Elvis Presley and you want a biopic of Elvis Presley, you could do far worse than Carpenter's Elvis from 1979, particularly because Kurt Russell is very, very good in it. So it's worth watching almost for him. But for, for anybody else uh, who's interested in checking out Carpenter's work or anything like that, it's such an outlier to the rest of his work and... As I said, it, it, the script is not that impressive, and uh, it's got a three-hour runtime, so it's definitely for completists only in that regard. But uh, after making those two films for TV, uh, then he returned to the theater for the main film that we're talking about today, his follow-up to Halloween. Halloween was kind of a, a modern urban legend, if you will, 
so what he did was he returned to the horror genre um, in more of a classic campfire ghost story sort of format with 1980s The Fog. Now, Nathan, you had seen yes, the... <laughs> uh, I know I talked for a very long time and you're very patient. Oh, you, you joke about Elvis's three hour runtime. I'm like, we're going to get there. <laughs> we're going to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you had seen, you had not seen the fog before I asked you to watch it for this, right? No, no, no. And in fact, have you already mentioned the four movies that we are documenting or are you keeping that a secret? Uh, yeah, I think I mentioned it in the preview for last week, so okay. it doesn't matter. Yeah, we can, we can say what well, we yeah, so, so, yeah, we're going to be looking at The Fog, They Live, uh, The Thing, and Halloween. And the only, honestly, the only Carpenter that I'm, well, I had seen Starman. I didn't know until after this experience that he had, was associated with that, but I have seen Starman. Oh, okay. Um, but other than that, um, I had only seen Halloween. So I went into The Fog purely just knowing uh, the title, which I don't know. I don't know about yeah. you. Like my wife gets annoyed with me sometimes because I'm the type of movie or even just media consumer that like, if I know I'm going to watch something, I, I actually prefer to know as little as possible. Like, um, so in this case, yeah, I'm I, the same way. I didn't watch a trailer. Um, I've got a friend who'll want to watch a trailer right before the movie. I'm like, why, why are you doing that? Like, you know, so no, I, I knew nothing about the fog or they live or, uh, I, I had a loose association with the thing, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But no, the fog was okay. I was foggy when it came to the fog. I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know where it was going. Well, uh, it, it's it's oh, uh, listeners are about to roll their eyes at me, but uh, but of course, uh, our show is called The Fear of God. Oh, no, 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 the, uh, you don't stop, 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 make stop. The fog. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> listeners, yeah, listeners I, uh, and I just co-hosts. figured it'd make everybody have a collective groan. <laughs> um, I'm not editing that out either. That's that's staying in. That's uh, all right. That's but all right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so so what did you think? What did you think of the fog in general? General impressions of it? Well, you know, I. It's funny knowing where the series is going, uh, especially for viewers who have seen these movies. I was going into this John Carpenter experience just having no idea what to expect. You know, I mean, I, I knew just the name, but but didn't know a whole lot about what it was attached to and just uh, hadn't done the deep dive to know, you know, kind of what his landmark pieces were. And so, so literally it was, you gave me this list of movies and I was like, all right, I'm going to watch them. So with The Fog specifically, had no idea what to expect, was anticipating actually what I ended up getting with The Thing, but was anticipating just for no reason other than, early 80s horror and and this is just what i thought was going to happen something more ghastly something more kind of mm. gory that sort of thing and 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 i was pleasantly surprised by the fog i mean don't get me wrong it's it's pretty dated in its production value but for not knowing what to expect and anticipating something with a what we would sort of associate with like a harder r rating i was genuinely sort of this is going to sound like a dismissive word i actually mean it complimentarily <laughs> if that's a word. Uh, but the, the fog was very, was very quaint. Oh yeah. It had this sort of, I mean, you use the word campfire from that opening shot that sets a lot of tone, right? I mean, you've got Absolutely. an old man sitting around a campfire with kids. You're, you kind of know, okay, well this isn't going to get terribly ghoulish um, just by the virtue of all these children here, or at least that was my thoughts seeing that scene. Sure. And I just, I don't know. I thought it, I thought it set the stage for this kind of almost, storybook kind of feel which it 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 honors that feel um yeah, yeah I, it, I told you after watching it um this didn't come up in our pilot episode but i was as a teenager 
a fan of the R.L. Stein stuff. This is this is oh, long yeah. before Goose Goosebumps was popular or even published, I think. But it had that kind of vibe to it, just the like curl up and read a kind of ghost story kind of feel. And so I was, I don't know, I was really, um, really impressed with the tone. So yeah, I mean, there are other there are other specifics I could hone in on, but in terms of your question of what did I think? That was sort of uh, the answer to that. Yeah, and and the, uh, I agree with everything you said. I think that it sets a really nice tone. I love I love that opening scene, which uh, we'll have little bits of trivia here and there. But I think it's very interesting that that original scene actually wasn't part of the film. Uh, it was something they had to add in later uh, because they needed to beef up the running time a little bit. The first cut of the of the fog, I think, ran at seventy five or seventy eight minutes, and they needed it to to cross at least the eighty minute mark, and they wanted it at an hour and a half. So he added a few other scenes. Well, I'm I'm going to jump in there. I know I know I get criticized for correcting you sometimes, and I'm not correcting so much as uh, adding to. I did some digging on the Wikipedia page, and it actually, at least what it had to say, had less to do with runtime and more that he wasn't pleased with with the edit. He wasn't pleased with the movie he had, so kind of oh, went yeah. back, added that scene. To, I, I imagine as more of like a tone setter, added a couple other elements um, to make it a bit more cohesive. So yeah, I mean, that, that, which is interesting because if you eliminate that scene, I don't know that it dramatically changes the movie but <clears throat> that scene is so good at setting a very specific tone that i think it would change your view on it change the feeling associated with that movie I, I yeah i agree and it's interesting to think about that that there's a that there's a scene which really has nothing to do with the rest of the narrative and doesn't uh, get called back to at any point during the narrative but is so vital uh, as you said and as i agreed that uh, in setting the tone for the movie that you're about to see and the kind of thing that it is yeah, I love that opening campfire shot. I think it's 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 very well written. It's well shot, and I just depending on how loud your TV is, that that first watch click when it snaps shut might sure. make you jump a little bit because the, the the sound on it is elevated. You know, it's it's a it's a really great opener, and uh, a couple of other interesting sort of trivia bits on this. Uh, so. When uh, recently I went back home to visit some family and uh, my nephew, like myself, is very, very fond of scary movies. And we had the opportunity to watch a scary movie, but we were going to be watching it with uh, my niece and with my wife, both of whom have uh, more tame sensitivities. And uh, so we needed to select a film that was going to fit the bill for us in the creep factor, but not be so abrasive and so uh, bombastic that it that it unnerved uh, my niece and my wife, and we actually selected the fog, mm. which uh, it, it, and I think it kind of fits that bill. If you're if you're a fan of scary movies, but you don't like sort of the more intense, gruesome stuff that you tend to discover with scary movies, I think the fog is a really great opportunity for you to see a, a genuinely good scary movie, but it's not so intense that it's going to. Uh, to really upset everybody, and that may sound to some people like a turnoff. Well, but. and if I can jump in there, like you, you're identifying one of the main things I was pleasantly surprised by, especially going in with certain expectations. Um, was one, I mean, just on a technical level, you know, especially for what 1980 is that what you said? Yeah, 1980. Yeah. It kind of does a lot with a little. I mean, the production design is a bit sparse for what it is, but I don't know. I really. I, John Carpenter himself and maybe ardent fans would look at it and say, well, you know, you could have made the ghost pirates, lepers, ghost pirate lepers or whatever they are, the uh, a bit more 
gruesome and ghastly with a with a elevated effects budget. And yet, for me watching this movie for the first time, I was actually kind of like, I like it because of that. I like it because, yeah, you know, there, it's not gory. It's it's you know, most of it is kind of in shadow. They're just these real sparse shots of these, you know, sort of bandaged figures shrouded in darkness. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I was really, I just was really taken with that aesthetic um, in a way that was probably not intended, um, but I really responded well to. Yeah. And, and you touched on something that is, uh, you know, we want to each episode kind of talk about some of the trademarks of his work. And you just touched on it that he does a lot with a little. He's really known, uh, even though he would later direct some films that had more robust budgets, he's known for taking smaller budgets and getting very, very creative with them. I think The Fog was made for only a million dollars, which, uh, you know, again, I don't have a million dollars, but when you consider most major feature films, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's pocket change. You know, that's, that's, I, I, read, I hope it becomes like, I hope it becomes a trope of our podcast that whenever you throw out, a dollar figure, regardless. <laughs> you immediately follow it with, I mean, I don't have $10. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, Will you please make a note to just make that part of your stick? All right. It's, it, it's done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag, hashtag, I don't have. Um, but, uh, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, and, and not only is he known for sort of, you know, working with a, a modest budget, but he's also kind of got some some economic storytelling style. Like he he keeps things very uh, simple and very confined. There's a couple of elements to the backstory that sort of bridge into some complications. But the fog is a very straightforward, simple story. It's a very sort yeah. of classically styled ghost story, which I respond to still very positively because that man, I love me a good ghost story. I did think that uh, you know in in the conversation of you know, how I responded favorably to something I didn't know I was going to get. I did maybe, maybe the flip side of that was, um, it just made me chuckle. And I was like, was this what it was like to be a adult in 1980? I don't know, but it just really made me laugh that Jamie Lee Curtis is hitchhiking. <laughs> then the, is this, is the character's name, uh, Nick, I, you know, the, the actor, the, the character who picks her up. Um, so she's, she's hitchhiking. She gets, uh, you know, she's hitchhiking on this dark, deserted country road. She gets picked up by this stranger. In 2016, that's your premise for the scary movie right there. <laughs> instead, instead, in 1980, she gets picked up by him. She gets in the car. They make some small talk. He is drinking and driving. <laughs> she makes no, she has, she has no problem with that. You know, then the, that scene ends with the car windows shattering because, you know, the, the leper, Pirate ghosts are are setting sail for Antonio Bay. I think was the name of the place. Antonio Bay, yes. Not to be confused with Antonio Banderas, which is a completely different place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the windows smash and shatter, and then we leave that scene. Then there's a filler scene between there, and then literally the next time we see Jamie Lee Curtis and this other character, they're in bed together, clearly post coitus, and to add to the just sort of mounting silliness associated with this thread of story <laughs> then one of them says something like i, I didn't catch your name and they kind of laugh it off and, <laughs> and then share each other's names uh, and then they're besties for the next 36 hours I mean, yeah it's, it's, yeah it's true it's true that character's name by the way you were corrected that character's name is nick 
Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it is funny, sort of those sensibilities. I think that's largely a function of sort of the, the sensibilities of the seventies, uh, more so than necessarily eighties. Of course, this is at the onset of the eighties, but, but yeah, you're right. It's, we're so insulated to those kinds of things that when you see them, it's like, Oh, okay. So I guess this is not a problem now, but, uh, (laughs) but you know, what's, you know, what's funny about that. So obviously Jamie Lee Curtis is, uh, the main character in Halloween, right? Um, and, you know, we'll, again, we'll be referencing Halloween several times. We'll talk more in depth in a couple of weeks. But Halloween actually wasn't her big break. After Halloween, she had a hard time finding work. I don't know if she had a single acting job for the two years following Halloween, which John Carpenter was stunned by because he thought her work in Halloween was so strong. So he recast her in that role in The Fog. And it was actually The Fog that became kind of her big break because following that, People began to associate like, oh, she was in Halloween and she was in the fog. So then she started getting lots of work in other scary movies. But uh, I just thought that was really interesting. That Which is funny because I don't uh, personally, you know, between the fog and Halloween, I would say she's got a far more substantive role and more noticeable in Halloween than she does in the fog. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I completely agree with you. But, uh, but I just thought that was interesting. A few, uh, a few, bu- I was going to say a few bullet points, uh, just, you know, some fun scenes, uh, in watching it, the fox specifically. Um, I kept waiting when the ghost leopard pirates, which is a great band name, by the way, somewhere out there, <laughs> the ghost leopard pirates, when, especially with where I'm going with this comment, when they start descending on the lighthouse, uh, radio station and oh, again, I yeah. just I just kept waiting for them to start spinning some discs, you know, <laughs> once she's left. I mean that would just been a great a great nineteen eighties <laughs> movie moment that I really I, I mean you come on. The if they live can go where it goes in the middle of that movie and we'll get there. <laughs> you can you can totally have the ghost leopard pirates spinning some discs. But so that was good. Or could it could have been could have been awesome. Um, <laughs> wow. On a more serious on a more serious note Two shots that I love, two scenes that I love is one, just the visual once the ghost leopard pirates, I'm going to keep using that phrase, Oh yeah, are first uh, shown in mass in the church. That was just a really great shot. Oh, yes. Um, it really kind of evokes all it needs to with very little going on. Um, that and then also, you know, maybe it was just in a movie with pretty standard cinematography and direction. This really stood out to me. The shot on top of the lighthouse. That was just a really well done. Oh yes, really well done moment. Yeah, I would echo. Any any other specific? Personally, I don't know, Reed. That I would say there was a whole lot of like quote unquote scary moments. I mean, I jumped a little bit when the cars when the windows exploded in the car. But sure, sure. Other than that, although I should mention, I don't know if it's a scary moment as much as just an odd one when um, doggone it, what's the adult actress's name that you Adrian Barbo? You were. Okay. No, 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 no. Not her. Uh, oh, uh, the, the, the mayor, the mayor lady. Oh, uh, Janet Lee, actually, which, uh, yes, yes, Janet Lee. Well, when she's, when they're at the church and talking to Father Malone, or maybe they've gone back to see him, I don't know, but there's this odd scene where she walks to, you know, the front of the chapel and in the background is just shadow. And then Hal Holbrook just sort of emerges out of the shadows. And, you <laughs> yes. Know, it's just this odd little moment. Like, is he just chilling back there? You know? I don't know. It was, it was a little scary because of how weird it was. I know. He's just sitting in the shadows watching everyone. Like, who's just waiting, come in my church just waiting now? For somebody, that moment. It doesn't matter who it is. He's just waiting for somebody to walk to the front of the chapel. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, uh, one thing that's interesting to note, because we haven't said it yet, uh, Janet Lee 
is known to to horror fans because she iconically uh, met her demise in um, in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. She's the she's the victim in the famous shower scene. Uh, but also, spoiler alert. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah sorry. Spoiler alert. Um, but, um, but also of note is she is actually Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, which I thought was, was really interesting. They would make, I think these, I think this is correct. They would make two films together. They would make this one and, uh, they also would team up again for Halloween H2O, which we'll reference in a few weeks. But, but yeah, I just thought it was very interesting that, that she, uh, not only is such an icon for horror fans everywhere, but also is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. So when they're on screen together, particularly in that, you know, climactic scene in the church, I just, it always takes me out of the movie just a little bit to know that bit of trivia. But, um, but can I throw, can I throw a random thought at you? Oh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so this, this is less to do with the content of the movie and more just a diversion that you can shut down promptly or we can engage for a minute or two. So in, in doing some research post watching the movie, you know, like I said, I was digging through the Wikipedia page, and, and it's really interesting to note Carpenter's hindsight on the fog just doesn't seem very positive. Mm. You know, over and and you and I had a conversation about that's one reason the remake that that you find abysmal and it seems all of Rotten Tomatoes does as well. Got yeah. greenlit as is sort of he was because of his displeasure in the rear view with the initial the fog, and so I, like I was just thinking about the notion of self-awareness of mm. filmmakers. We really don't have to spend much time talking about this, but this is, what are we in right now? Or the first, the early August. Um, I just saw a screening of Suicide Squad last night, which mm. um, I'm sorry, my own personal views on, yeah, my own personal views on, you know, uh, were just that I, 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 maybe in a vacuum, I might've enjoyed it a little bit. I just didn't get much viewing pleasure out of it. Harley Quinn's fantastic. If you want a big screen, Harley Quinn, go check it out. Otherwise, I didn't find a whole lot to like about it. And then, of course, this morning I'm doing some browsing and I see David Ayer, the director, using this new phrase that I've grown to hate about how he made it for the fans. Oh. And, I, you know, like, and it's not my intention to, to sit here and bash Suicide Squad. I am making, however, a point about filmmaking in 2016 and filmmaking in 1980 and the self-awareness John Carpenter seemed to exhibit. Now, how closely to the release of this movie this began, I don't know. But we live in this interesting moment in filmmaking when it's not just a film. Right, right. For like, it is very possible that David Ayer in private conversations says, ah, you know, man, dadgummit, I just really didn't quite get the movie I wanted out of this. Mm -hmm. But it will be years before that sort of thing ever gets made public if it is the case, because it's not just Suicide Squad. You've got 10 movies or, you know, I'm, I'm speaking, not speaking specifically, but, you know, you've got a decade's worth of franchise that needs to ride on these movies. Right. And so the money tied up in a single movie, much less an entire extended universe, is, is massive. And so it's just interesting to me to read someone like John Carpenter, who is not just niche, but is well-respected, well-regarded as a, a significant filmmaker in those conversations be able to speak very candidly. And again, how closely this was to the actual release of The Fog, I, I don't know. But, you know, I just feel like that's a sorely lacking thing in our current sort of movie environment is you just can't be honest because there's too much money involved. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, to actually be able to say, I'm just really disappointed with how that went. 
what what any thoughts on that specifically or uh yeah a, a few i think uh well i think you're absolutely right i think that in today's sort of the, the postmodern climate of not only, I mean, you have fans reacting to casting decisions on, right. on films, right. you know, for performances that they, that haven't even been delivered yet, let alone been seen. And that, you know, there's a longer conversation to be had about this idea of, uh, you know, that maybe we'll have at some point about fan entitlement and how that informs, you know, the, the responses to certain films. But, I think about one of the things that compels me about John Carpenter as a filmmaker is uh, that for so much of his work, there are only maybe three or four films that he made that were highly praised at the time and are still highly praised. Halloween's one of them. Starman's another one. Uh, Escape from New York is probably another one. But a lot of his films, uh, the reactions initially were very negative. And people could look at something like a Suicide Squad or they could look at, uh, you know, filmmakers do uh, sort of ride on that idea a lot that like, well, time will tell. Uh, there's a there's a song, I forget by who, called Time the Revelator that it just talks about this idea of, you know, time is the one that that really sort of says what the classics are and what's not. And, sure, sure. you know, the, the, the reappraisal of certain things. There are films that are, that are wildly popular at the time that people just simply don't talk about anymore that are, that are not even in the cultural vernacular. And then there's other films that are either dismissed or ignored or outright despised at the time that later become, you know, sort of cruxes for where culture goes. And I do think that it's difficult for any filmmaker to assess their own work, uh, on any basis other than, the, okay, so I'll say this, and and then we can maybe transition on. Uh, when a filmmaker says, "Well, we made this for the fans," to be honest, I I think that that is a bit of a cop out. I, I was going to nuance my statement a little bit more, but I'm just going to go for it. I think that's a bit of a cop out um, because any filmmaker, I think, should, and I think Carpenter does this. They should make the film for them. They should make the film that they want to make. Um, and I think that's the, that's the real sort of opportunity that they have to make a landmark film that will stand the test of time is if they make the sure. kind of film that they want to see. This idea of, well, we made this film for, like, for the fans or for the audience. Um, and I don't know, maybe our listeners would disagree with me on this, but I think that that kind of notion is dependent upon a reaction that is fickle. And it's dependent on something that only time is going to tell. Audiences could come and they may initially love this movie. And then, you know, in a few years, just forget all about it. Or they may come right. and, and, and hate your movie. But years later, suddenly you'll begin to see emerge this idea of like, this film is great. This film is a masterpiece. Right. And I think the only way to counter that is for filmmakers or any artist, any creative artist, make the material you want to see made yep. and, and yep. keep that focus. I apologize for. Well, for I think, here. I think, no, you're fine. I mean, because uh, I, I want to give you high fives across the country here. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, because I think ultimately a statement like made it for the fans is just dishonest. Mm, yeah. You know, there, there's, and, you know, I'm going to come off as cynical as a day is long. I don't mean to because I called you after I got out of Suicide Squad and impassionately, impassionately intoned, I want this stuff to be good. I don't go in desiring to come out sour. Yeah. But when it just reeks of sort of corporate art by committee, and then you've got Zack Snyder six months ago, I made it for the fans, or David Ayer today, I made it for the fans. Like, 
Like, come on, man. You know, just don't even say anything. Like, yeah. And and I know there's there's a massive machine and 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 all that sort of stuff. But I think there's there's something. You know, you you hit on something that I think is valuable, and that's make it for yourself because at least that's honest, and at least that's true to what you're aiming for. And some of our favorite that you and I've talked about before. I mean, you just watched Midnight, Midnight Special last night, Jeff Nichols. Yeah. That Joker yeah. makes movies for himself. You know, he makes movies that he wants to be seen, but those are, those are coming from about as honest a, a, a place as an artist as can be found. I'm just using the medium of film. Yeah. And also folks like we would say like a Damon Lindelof would lost. They got such blowback for the end of that series what did they do? They didn't say, well, we made it for y'all, the fans. We thought you'd like this. No, they said, we made the story we wanted to tell. Exactly. And I think there's exactly. just something real powerful as a viewer to be able to be like, because that's those are the, the artists you start to find, these people who speak to my sensibilities um, as opposed to someone who just sort of patronizes me. You know, anyway, that's that's a whole diatribe, and we could clearly spend a lot of time talking about that. Yeah, and I'm, and I, I have a feeling that that theme is probably gonna gonna come up uh, recurring as we talk more about some of Carpenter's later work, because as you said, and as this cold conversation started, like he, I think initially, you know, wasn't totally happy with the the end result of the fog, and as you said, later signed off on the remake. Uh, specifically because he wasn't wasn't quite happy with where it was. I have heard him say, you know, in recent uh, interviews that he he does now consider it something of a of a horror classic and, yeah. and kind of of its time, uh, which I totally agree. And uh, not to not to too dramatically transition here, but but as we as we sort of eyeball winding down, one one sort of other note that I think the fog has as its element that I think shows up a lot in his work is is something that's a bit more thematic. There's this there's this idea in a lot of Carpenter's work of of kind of penance or or paying for something, not necessarily atonement, which I think is a different thing. Like atonement is you know sort of more based on reconciliation and bringing things back together. But there's a lot in Carpenter's work about uh, penalty or penance, like like paying a price for something. And that's very sure. present in the narrative of The Fog. You know, we haven't really talked much about the specific plot. I'll just briefly say here, you know, there's this small, uh, isolated town called Antonio Bay. And uh, the story is that while they are celebrating the founding of their town on its anniversary, it emerges that the town was actually founded on uh, six people who had murdered this this pirate and his his band of pirates the the what did you call them the rebel ghost the, pirates the ghost pirate lepers uh ghost pirate lepers there you go that uh, he had murdered them they, this group of six people had murdered them and and stolen their money uh stolen their gold and then used that gold to found their town and specifically to build the church so the plot of the fog is that these these ghost pirate lepers are returning on the 100th you. anniversary, <laughs> you're welcome. You, you owe me. You owe me a dollar. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I don't have a dollar in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, that's okay. So these, uh, you know, so these ghosts are returning to enact revenge on this the the descendants of these six people and to to reclaim their gold. So what that made me think of specifically, uh, in sort of a more specific vein than just the idea of penance in general. Is, uh, I, I think, I, I don't want to dive too deep into the cultural conversation about this, but I think there is a, an idea pervading several aspects of, of us as, as people 
um, that says like we have to pay in some regard for the things that we did not have any control over the uh, basically the sins of our fathers kind of thing mm-hmm. where like you know things that happened you know a hundred years ago or a couple hundred years ago um, or things you know on a more personal level that that our grandparents did or something like that uh, that we have to answer for uh, either culturally or socially um, or sometimes financially and monetarily like that, that there has to be some sort of penance and I thought it was just really interesting obviously the fog is a a classical styled ghost story, but that idea is prevalent in the horror genre. The idea of, of, you know, coming back after, you know, I'm going to reclaim what your father or your grandfather stole from me and I'm going to reclaim it from you. And, uh, it's, it's just an interesting idea because in, in most horror films, uh, the person coming to enact that, that claim is actually the, the villain or the monster is, is coming to sort of claim the, the penance as it was. Um, but I actually see it in several places culturally where we have this notion pervading over us that, that we have something to answer for, although we directly did not have any control over it. So what I wanted to kind of talk about uh, as uh, maybe sort of like a final touch point for our conversation is this idea of is it should it be expected that we have something to answer for when we had no control over the transgression we had no control over what went wrong is it just something that that hangs over us do do we think that that's just i guess is my question is do we think it's just that we necessarily have to answer for or or do penance for something uh, even though we directly had no involvement with the transgression that took place. Do we think that that's a just idea or is that a little unfair? Well, I think the, the ghost pirate lepers would decisively declare that a just uh, course of action (laughs) (laughs) as they do. (laughs) You know, I I feel like this is just a, we'll we'll probably um, continue to hit similar or find similar themes as we engage this material. I, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking of, you know, from the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee, when when all oh, deaths yeah. were forgiven. I believe it was the seventh year. And, and I think there's a scary notion in society to relinquish one's sense of of reclaiming something that's due them. You know what I mean? Like, right, like, right. Like, we, we feel entitled. We feel, I mean, gosh, I saw a news story, what, a couple of weeks ago where some woman was being held accountable for her son's school loans after he had passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and, and just this, I mean, our culture, our, our, uh, you know, our American society right now is, is up to our ears in debt. And so that's a, that's a timely conversation, but I don't know for me personally, you know, that's, that's one of those things where forgiveness, mercy, justice, all of those things are, are deeply entwined and I know I'd be I'd be pretty ticked off if some ghost pirate lepers showed up demanding <laughs> something that my great great grandfather you know did to them. Like, what up? I don't know. <laughs> I have nothing to do with this. Sure. But but I feel like that's you know I mean you made a joke. I think it was before we even started recording today. You made the comment of scripturally uh, the, the the red letters um, as we find in the New Testament would sort of and this is paraphrasing sort of indicate you forgive everybody. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that even even saying that out loud, you know, I think of the 70 times seven sort of guideline, like, 
how many times to forgive. Yeah, which which isn't meant to be taken as strict math; is meant to be taken as metaphor. As well, how many times does it require for you to forgive them? Well, you do that. Yeah, I, I certainly don't think this movie is necessarily trying to suggest that as much as it does evoke that conversation. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I think the character uh, that that most sort of embodies this in a in a literal and a metaphorical way is Father Malone, because he's the one. Interesting, we didn't we didn't note this in trivia, but uh, if you're watching The Fog for the first time, pay attention to the opening character of Bennett, uh, the the church worker in the very beginning, because that is John Carpenter. That's his cameo. Uh, but uh, interesting, does he? Do- does he do that in every film? Not every film. He does it occasionally, uh, and very rarely as a speaking character, as he is in the fog. Because I think I think I recognized him as the thing in the thing. I mean, that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he doesn't age well. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, like uh, so. So, getting back to the character of Father Malone, that's an interesting character to me because the impetus of the story of the main story is that. He discovers in the wall of this church building, this old diary that his grandfather left, um, about the, the founding of the town. And he discovers that, that golden cross was actually the gold of, uh, the, the pirates who had come. Uh, so. The who? Uh, the, oh, the ghost pirate lepers. My apologies. Um, <laughs> so, uh, he discovers that the, you know, that the gold was their gold and, and that the church was kind of, built on on blood as much as it was on gold and so he discovers that this is brand new information to him yet at the end of the film in order to to stop the tide of what's happening he takes that oh yeah spoiler alerts for the fog but he takes that golden cross out to the pirates and you know, puts it forward and says, okay, you know, I'm, I'm the sixth conspirator. Take me, take the gold and take me. And that is his effort to sort of appease and, and do penance for what, you know, for the transgressions that have plagued this town and plagued the history of this town. So he offers himself up as sort of the, the compensation for this, uh, in an effort to try to make things right. And I think it's, I think it's very interesting before we sort of explore that idea possibly as a final note, um, that, uh, at first the, the ghost pirate lepers take the cross and, uh, and, and go away. But then, uh, there's a final jump moment <laughs> in this film where you think Father Malone is about to be off the hook and that his noble sacrifice has actually ultimately saved him. And, uh, spoiler alert, that is not the case. In fact, he was on the hook, if you will. Whoa! Yes. Nautical villains. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's, funny, it's funny you bring up that scene because I remember right before it, as it's clear that the movie's winding down, thinking, there's a surprisingly low body count in this movie. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> sure enough, Father Malone, old Hal Holbrook, just sort of pondering out loud, hmm. But there were six or whatever it is. He <laughs> yeah, why he didn't he turns around and there's old Blackbeard himself? Oh man, I know. And uh, but but I do I, I do think it's interesting and and uh, you know kind of kind of running short on time here. But uh, but I do think it's interesting this idea or this notion of you know he says to the pirates he says I'm the sixth conspirator, uh, but he's not. 
He's not the sixth conspirator. Hmm. He is the grandson of the sixth conspirator, but that's not what he says. He says, I, I'm the one. And I do, I do think it's notion and there's, uh, or I do think it's interesting, this notion that, you know, somebody could step forward and not say, uh, uh, there's a phrase that I remember a lot actually as it pertains to my job. And then I try to express to people as my job because a lot of times when something goes wrong at work or if something goes wrong in life, like you're constantly trying to find somebody to blame. Um, I don't know where this phrase came from, but it's been very helpful to sort of wrapping my head around this idea. It said, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility, hmm. which I, which I think is, is interesting. It's an interesting notion. Like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not to blame for this, but it is my responsibility to, to sort of make amends or to sort of pay penance. There's a, a passage of scripture that I think is, is very interesting. Uh, in Exodus, it talks a couple of times about, you know, the guilty, the, the sins of the, of one generation being passed on to even the third and fourth generation. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, verses 19 and 20, um, it says, yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? And it says, since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. That's the idea of, listen, it's, it, you don't have to necessarily carry on your back the the weight or the burden of things that you were not uh that were not your fault but i do think there is a powerful redemptive idea that says even though this is not my fault i will take responsibility for it and which is i think of course without getting too deep into it listeners will know we're christians we believe that is the posture of christ this is not my fault but i'll take responsibility for it i'll pay for it this is not my fault but I'll take responsibility for it. And I think whether you feel that that's just or whether you feel that that's right, I think there's a definite redemptive note in it and a powerful possibility for atonement in the notion sure. of, you know, this is this is not necessarily my fault, but I will take responsibility for it. Whether that be you're dealing with a friend or a broken relationship in your family or society and culture at large or ghost pirate lepers. I think there's possibility uh, in, in atonement and redemption by by this notion of it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. Sure. I think that's as good a place to any is to bring it home sort of wrap up yeah um well we so had if, to, the, if the if the ushers will come down um, <laughs> exactly go ahead and make that happen uh we'll pass the collection plate because i don't have a dollar in my bank account you know <laughs> so, uh, and i don't have what any ghost pirate gold stuff. crosses you know to, nope. to, to give to anybody I, I hope you i hope you don't brother because otherwise they're coming to get you <laughs> um well, we, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation, uh, about John Carp, you know, sort of beginning the conversation of John Carpenter at large and most specifically about the fog. Again, we'll be, we'll be concentrating on that all through October. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking specifically at, um, the film They Live and sort of the next decade in Carpenter's career. Um, but as we say on every episode, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. You can continue the conversation with us about any of the films we've discussed, particularly The Fog um, or John Carpenter at large. You can do that in a number of places. You could like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what's our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. <laughs> At the fear of God. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. You can email us at the fear of God podcast at gmail.com. That's fear of God podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey and Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? 
at the Nathan Rouse. All right. Well, we would love to hear from you. Uh, any and all of your thoughts on this. Thanks so much for, for uh, listening and thanks so much for having this conversation with us. Nathan, thank you for having this conversation with me. Yes, sir. Thank you, Reed. All right. See we'll you next week. We'll see you next week, guys. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast, where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.